Hello, and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to our profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest is Emmanuel Boulier, the co-founder and CEO of Panelite. What I love most about this episode is that even though this was only the second time I've met Emmanuel in person, it felt like I was talking with an old friend. And what makes that even sweeter is how intimidated I had initially been to meet Emmanuel, knowing that she founded Panelite while in grad school 21 years ago. Panelite was so innovative that it was quickly sought after by Diller Scafidio Renfro back in the early days when they were Diller Scafidio, and the two companies still work together today. Emmanuel has a lot of wisdom to share about entrepreneurship and life lessons in general. Recently, Emmanuel took up bowl skating. That's right, skateboarding up and down and doing tricks in what can be described as a concrete pool shell. And she often posts incredible videos on social media of her and her son skating. So we start off this episode talking about that. Well, you don't look like you've ever fallen on your face or I anything. Did. I really? chipped a tooth. Really? Because mm-hmm. I fell like on my oh tooth. Oh my god! I literally fell, and then I and I was like, like I could feel. I was like spitting out pieces of tooth, and I was like, Oh, oh my, my god! I can't believe I just did this. But that was kind of a wake up call. But I mean, what am I going to do? Not skate? I figure that now that I've done that once, uh-huh. there's a little more caution built in. It's actually it took me weeks to get over like that. I was I doing bet. a certain kind of move when yeah. I fell on my face, and and I would feel this fear every time I did that. So oh, I wow. just was kind of forcing myself to just do it over and over again to kind of get over the fear. Wow. Good so. for you. I think I would have quit at that point. <laughs> oh, no, but it gives you so much. Yeah. You, can't, you just can't. You, it gets addictive. I admire that so much. Oh, thank I you. I really do. Because I remember what it was thank like you. to fall and like skin my elbow and be like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it. it is. I've never done anything like this. Um, where I could actually hurt myself, but it, but I love the thrill of it. And yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit addictive. It seems like it. So is it, did you start with the bowl skating? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I just took my first lesson. My son's coach said to me one day, well, why don't you get on a board? And I laughed like, that's hilarious, Pat. And then my son happened to go away um, and he was going to miss a lesson I just thought, well, maybe I'll just take his lesson slot. And I thought, I'll just learn how to kind of roll on a board. Like, I'll just learn to go in a straight line. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That That would be my first thought, too. Like, I'm just going (laughs) to go straight. (laughs) And and it fell on my 48th birthday, too, which which felt kind of significant. Like, okay, it's my 48th birthday. I'm going to learn to skateboard. And then that first lesson... I got hooked right away. I loved it. So there was no way I wasn't going to take another lesson. And even in that first lesson, I mean, I was just learning to yeah. kind of find my balance on the board, but I was also learning already to kind of do fakies a little bit and to turn. And so the very beginning basics of bull riding were already in that first lesson. Yeah. And then you just like, it's incremental, right? So you just learn little by little. Uh-huh. You know, now, like Nicholas will say to me, Mom, are you going to start airing out? And, I'm, <laughs> and I say, well, I, I don't know. 
probably because, you know, six months ago, I didn't think I'd be rolling in. Yeah. So why shouldn't I start airing out at some point? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's so So, cool. Yeah. It's exciting. Um, is your son, does he air out? Like, is he pretty good? Oh, yeah. Good? Oh, he's good. oh, he's much better than I am. <laughs> and other, other moms and, and dads, are they like doing it too? Or There are some who do. Yeah. There are some who do. Yeah. Um, not that many moms yet, but it's changing. You know, there are more moms now and there's a, there's a whole kind of movement in the skate world. There haven't been that many women skating uh-huh. sure. for a long time. I mean, there were some amazing pioneering women who did skate when mm-hmm. there were almost no girls skating. But now there's there are all these kind of organizations for girl skaters. And um, it's pretty wonderful to see. There's a group in Venice called Girl Swirl, and they do a group skate every Tuesday night. And, nice. and at our skate park, there's a, a group that skates every Saturday morning. So, you know, the skate park is an amazing place because we're all just skaters when we're in there. So, you know, I've made friends with people of all different backgrounds, ages, genders, persuasions, like everyone's just in there skating totally, and encouraging each other. It's like, well, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on front sides. I'm working on airing out. And then you encourage each other and it's just really lovely. Yeah, that is really cool. To me, skaters just seem so fearless. Would you have described yourself as a fearless person before this? No, (laughs) not in the least. And I'm still not fearless. Well, some skaters I think are fearless. So I'm thinking about this, this girl, Soleil, Uh who is, I think she must be seven or eight. And I skate with her. And the way I describe her is that she's not fearless, but she looks fear in the eye and she makes friends with it. (laughs) You know, she's just like, okay, I'm scared to do this. I am owning my fear. I'm going to do it anyway. And and I've just watched her. And that's, I think that's a really good approach, right? Totally. Because it is scary. There's something very scary about standing at the top of a concrete ramp and propelling yourself down it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an amazing feeling when you decide to do it anyway. And it's a huge thrill. That's awesome. Yeah. So I think the ticket is not so much to be fearless, but to make friends with the fear. Right. I could see it being addicting that it's um, working on tricks. Like what's the next yeah. thing for me to conquer? Yeah. Absolutely. And and also that um, you can work up to something. You can think, okay, I'm going to try this. And it might seem really daunting and, and unattainable, mm-hmm. but you break it down into steps, right? So it's like, okay, well, before I go this high on the wall, I'm just going to go this high and then I'm going to get this much more speed and just little by little you work up to Uh things, which applies a lot to life and business, right? Anything that seems kind of daunting, if you can break it down, it becomes more attainable. I don't know if this is true of skating, but with for surfing, I think that um, sometimes you just have to let go. Like you can't think about, you just have to kind of go for it and do it really fast. Yes. Um, or else you're, if, if you don't, then you end up, that's when you end up like falling or whatever. Yes. I think that's a, that's a really great observation. Actually, you kind of have to know when to just get out of your head and just do it. Yeah. So there's the making friends with the fear, but then there's also literally just trusting your body. Yeah. 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 It's almost like you don't have to tell it to do something. It's just going to 
after. Don't overthink it. Yeah. It's yes. just going to like do that thing. And then you're like, okay, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just kind of have to let go, which is also very healthy, I think. Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay. So getting back to <laughs> your, your business and your story, um, I'm sure you've told this a lot, but can you tell your story about how you got into architecture and then started Panelite? Sure. Um, well, actually the two are related unsurprisingly, I guess, but I got into architecture really because I don't even remember how young I was, but I became very much aware of the impact that spaces have on people. Oh. I was always just incredibly aware of, of the spaces I was in and how they made me feel. And not just space, but also daylight. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember I'd go on road trips with my parents. Um, my grandparents lived in France and we would drive this incredibly long distance from the north of France to the south of France to go and see them. And I would look out the car window and I would see buildings like in tiny villages or in huge fields. And I would look at those buildings, those old stone buildings, and I would imagine what it was like to be inside them. Oh, cool. And I would just, I would build these kind of um, visions in my head of these spaces and, and what the light quality was like inside them. I've always kind of done that and been aware of the impact of space and daylight. So I guess by the time I learned that architecture was a an option as a mm -hmm. profession. Mm -hmm. So I must have been, I don't know, 10 or something. I just thought, oh, well, wow. that's what I want to do because I'll get to design spaces that have a positive impact on people. I don't know if I would have articulated it like that at the time, but just in my gut, that was what I wanted to do. So I was on that, that path pretty early. Um, and then, you know, I went to architecture school just thinking, okay, I'm going to come out as an architect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <but laughs> seems logical. But um, when I was at grad school, I had the opportunity to work on a project, an actual commission with one of my classmates and friends. And uh, it was a tiny, tiny project. It was a, a pool house. So about the size of the space we're in now, actually. Cool. Yeah. Um, and we just went crazy with the materials. We thought, well, it's a small space, so we're going to make sure there's good light and we're going to use really interesting materials. And so we were looking for a material that would be super lightweight and very, very stiff and light transmitting because we wanted to make basically a kind of garage door, but that would pivot to become a sunshade. So the idea was that when it was closed, it would act like this kind of lantern and um, it had to be stiff and lightweight so that it could do this kind of pivoting mechanism. Right. And that's awesome. Does that actually exist today? Like the garage door that also functions as a shade? Well, now you could make one out of panel light, but we never got to because the project <laughs> got canceled. Okay. <laughs> Maybe one day we just have to build this Yeah, because it's amazing <laughs> and it would be perfect for California. It would actually. Yeah. So we just thought, what are we going to make this thing out of? Obviously, glass is too heavy. Even acrylic was too heavy. And we learned about honeycomb technology, which is really extraordinary. I mean, yeah. it was, you know, honeycomb was developed during World War II to make um, flight more efficient. So it's this incredible network of honeycomb cells where each cell acts like a little I-beam. So you've got this super lightweight, super strong composite. Mm -hmm. 
And we assumed that it would exist in a translucent version because that was what we needed. And nobody had one. So we were calling all these honeycomb panel companies and saying, could you send us samples of your translucent honeycomb panels? And they all said, well, we don't we don't make them translucent. Nobody needs them translucent because they were used in aerospace and clean rooms, truck bodies. They're used in a lot of applications, but always opaque. And um, one of the manufacturers that we called was kind of open-minded and said, well, if you want to send me the components, mm-hmm. I'll make you a prototype. And so we sent him some fiberglass reinforced um, polyester facings. Like, okay, you know, yeah. With the kind of slightly visible fiberglass um yeah, yeah. Leave. And um and they used aluminum honeycomb for making clean room panels mostly. Okay. So they did an aluminum hexagon honeycomb panel with translucent FRP. On either side or uh-huh, on oh, either okay. side. Yeah. And um they sent us this sample and it was really extraordinary when this sample arrived. I mean, I think it was probably not more than six inches by six inches. And it blew our minds because it was so, it was beautiful. I mean, the way it treated light and the way it manipulated view, right? So you could sort of see through it, but not at an angle. And um, it was just amazing. And we thought, well, this is going to change architecture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> we were young and starry-eyed and we just thought, imagine what this could do, really. So during this time, I guess the pool house was, looking less and less likely because as usual, you know, there were timing issues and then budget issues on this tiny project. (laughs) Finally, they just said, you know what, we can't afford to do this right now. So that didn't happen. But my colleague who then became my business partner was working in the office of Mineo Brock, Mm -hmm. um, just a wonderful firm working out of New York at the time. And they said, well, this is very cool stuff and we'll put it into this loft project that we're doing. It was a perfect application because it was a New York, it was one of those New York lofts that has windows on either end, nothing in between, very, very long and narrow. So they did a series of sliding panelite walls just to keep light through the entire space. And so those walls could either be opened up or closed for privacy, but you always had the daylight coming through the panels. And um, it was a, a really beautiful project. And Lucky for us, it it landed on um, the cover of the Spanish edition of Interior Design. Nice. Yeah. And at the time, I don't think we had even started the company yet. You know, we were just excited to make these panels for the project. It was not a tiny order either. I think they had at least 20 panels in there. Yeah. I've seen the pictures and it's like the whole interior is this panel light product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the lovely thing about it is that the family that lived there, apparently the young girl who grew up in that apartment talked to her parents about like how happy that material made her. Oh, cool. Which is, you know, to me, that is like, okay, I'm doing what I wanted to do. I wanted to go into architecture to make a difference to the way people felt about the space that they occupy. And so to get that kind of feedback and we we get similar feedback on other projects and it's always to me it's like that's exactly why i'm doing this yeah um so the loft was built it was on the cover yeah and you were still in grad school though i was still in grad school i was in my second year of grad school yeah so i was you know i was going to school during the day and then and you know it was the <laughs> 90s it was the late 90s so we literally I would get home from school and my business partner would be in my apartment, obviously, because that had become our office. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
And we had like, you know, one of the translucent Macs, those iMacs. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the big, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So we had the iMac and we had, um, you know, a landline with an answering machine <laughs> on it and a fax. And, um, and we just started, once that um, project got published, we started getting some interest. And the thing that really prompted us to start a company was the day we came home and or came into the office <laughs> and <laughs> there was a message on the answering machine from Diller Scafidio. I love the way they left the message. It was Dean Simpson at the time at Diller Scafidio. And he left the message saying, I'm calling from Diller Scafidio. We are architects in New York. <laughs> and we just looked at each other. <laughs> like, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. We know who you are. <laughs> um, and he said, we're very interested in your panels for this project. And that was the moment where we thought we should start a company. And so we went through all the, you know, we got an operating agreement in place and went and started the process of filing a patent and started working with Diller Scafidio on this restaurant project, the Brasserie, which was a great project. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's the one with the wine bottles. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The one with the wine bottles and the one with the, um, so the, the men's and women's bathrooms were separated by a wall of panelite. Oh, wow. So you had this kind of, you know, in the late nineties, there was also a lot of, um, in academic architectural circles, there was a lot of interest in voyeurism and what you, you know, what you see, but you don't see and mm-hmm. kind of pushing boundaries. And so they played with that. They had this panelite wall where you could, you could kind of see movement on mm-hmm. the other side. So when you got this call, I mean, you're a grad student. I remember being a grad student and learning about this firm and thinking that they were, you know, the pinnacle of what's edgy and cool and yeah. architecture. Yeah. Were you just intimidated? I would have been like, they're calling me. (laughs) (laughs) It was thrilling. I mean, we definitely were excited for sure. I don't know about intimidating. It was more like, let's do this. Like we're being handed an amazing opportunity. So let's really, let's do it. How did you know what to do at that point? Because like getting a patent and farming a business and you had already manufactured the panels on a scale, but not like a yeah. huge scale yet. So right. um, how did you learn all of that at that point? We really learned as we went. I mean, you know, we got a referral to a lawyer and the lawyer walked us through the process of putting together the operating agreement. We got a referral to a patent lawyer. I mean, it was all just kind of one step at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, we definitely made some mistakes. Um, I mean, the legal stuff went pretty smoothly. The manufacturing was more, you know, because we were working with people who had been making opaque honeycomb panels. Right, right. <laughs> so they used to say to us, well, the great thing about this stuff is you can see through it. And the awful thing is you can see through it. Because if you had anything a little speck of whatever embedded in the panel, you could see it. I mean, there's nowhere to hide in a translucent honeycomb panel. Any flaw is going to be apparent. And um, they had to get used to one of our, one of our big struggles in the early days of, of manufacturing was working with manufacturers who were used to an industrial spec with tolerances 
that were quantifiable, not visual so much, right? So for us to say, we don't want glue streaks, it's like, well, how do you quantify not having glue streaks? And also, why does it matter, you know, from their perspective? Right. <laughs> it's a strong <laughs> bond. Like, what, what do you want? Um, so it was kind of learning to speak a more industrial language and translate aesthetic requirements wow. into into a more industrial yeah tolerances and quantities yeah we really learned as we went but at the time i mean you were still in grad school for architecture which is really hard yeah. on its own yeah and then like starting a business is also really hard granted you had a business partner but still yeah um was there at that point did you prioritize? Like, did you choose one over the other? Um, n no, not really. I mean, I just, I know this sounds like every other architecture grad student, but I just didn't sleep much. <laughs> I really did not sleep much in those days. Wow. I probably didn't go out as much as one should when one is living in New York. <laughs> sure. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it was like a studio and panelite. Mostly. <laughs> and, okay. And then did you incorporate Panelite into any of your projects? <laughs> oh, um, I don't think I did. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't believe it. What a missed opportunity. Yeah. But you know what? It was Columbia. It was like everything was, you know, in Maya and Alias. Everything was crazy curvy. And, right. and at the time we only made <laughs> Panelite and flat panels. <laughs> So maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. I'm, I'm so impressed by you. <laughs> oh, thank you. I really think it was just um, a process of putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. You know, like being interested in something and then answering a question like, well, how are we going to make this happen? And then you kind of go to the next thing. Oh, well, there are people who want to buy it. So how are we going to produce it? Now? Right for people who want to buy it. And <laughs> it was just, it all just seemed like such an exciting opportunity and a challenge. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you had calls coming in and architects were really excited about this product means that there was clearly a gap to be filled and you filled it. I think because it's not like we set out to think, oh, how are we going to make money? Let's make something that people will want to buy. We were not even thinking about that. Mm -hmm. We were just working on our own project and we really needed Panelite. I mean, I don't know how we would have filled that application without Panelite. So it came out of absolute necessity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. And so as the company and the product has evolved, I know that you're focused a lot on being innovative. And so there's that curiosity and willingness to like try. So I wonder now, how does innovation happen? Is it client driven? Is it internally R&D driven? Or is it kind of market driven in terms of like codes or reactions to um, competitors? Or It's a little bit of all of those. Not so much competitors. I mean, we've never had that much direct competition anyway. And whenever we do, our approach is always to think if we're just the best we can possibly be, mm -hmm. it'll kind of take care of itself. So we try not to obsess over what competitors are doing. But all of those other factors are definitely, uh, they all play in. So some of our product lines have been developed because 
of a client's requirements. For example, our facade panel, our clear shade panel, originally um, we made it for Office for Metropolitan Architecture because we were working with them on interior panels. And they said, can you just figure out how to put this on a facade, please? Because we'd like to use it on a facade. And so we took that request quite seriously. Yeah. (laughs) And they may even have said just kind of casually, I think actually (laughs) Tina Manis at the time, who was great to work with, she said something like, why don't you just put it in between two panes of glass, you know, mm, yeah. <laughs> which is a very simple way to describe clear shade. So we we worked on that. And it obviously it wasn't quite that easy because nothing is when you're dealing with materials and yeah. developing materials. But essentially, we did figure out how to just put it between two panes of glass. And that became the clear shade product that was used at IIT. That was So that was the first application at Illinois Institute of Technology, mm-hmm. which was a, such a wonderful project to work on. So the drive to develop that project was really an aesthetic desire on the part of OMA. And we later realized that the product was really doing something quite amazing in terms of daylighting and solar heat control. Uh So we developed it originally aesthetically and then became aware of these really phenomenal performance properties. And so that led us to a kind of different direction in terms of product development, because once we became aware of that kind of base characteristic of the product, we thought, well, now how do we develop this further? You know, how do we make it perform even better for daylighting, for solar heat gain control? And uh, that's really what we're pushing very hard on now. I mean, that's just something I'm so excited about because it's an area that has the potential to make a huge difference in terms of energy savings Mm -hmm. and also well-being. And those are two areas that are increasingly important in architecture and also even in codes, right? Right. Those things are starting to be mandated. So- That product is probably a good description of how we react. You know, we react to what our clients are asking us for, but then we also react to seeing the potential, the performance potential Mm -hmm. of something, and then choosing to focus on that area of development. Cool. Yeah. And the last time we were talking at the um, symposium panel, you um, were talking about how you have to get more involved in the formation of of codes, actually. So how do you deal with all of that? What's been your experience? Well, we're getting more involved now, just going to those meetings. A lot of this process is open. I mean, meetings are held, right? Right. To to hear from key stakeholders. So we were just at um, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab last week um, for a meeting about, uh, it was very specific, about (laughs) Uh, BSDF files, so bi-directional scattering distribution function, <laughs> which has to do with basically the way that, that daylight is scattered okay. in a space. <laughs> and um, so it was it was a great group. I mean, there were, you know, engineers, code makers, a few other manufacturers who have products that use BSDF numbers to quantify their energy savings. And the the specific nature of BSDF is that it relates to products like ours, which have a performance that varies as the um, sun's angle changes. So they're called angular selective. Okay. And there are just aren't that 
many, and sometimes a product like that can get overlooked in the code. But the LBNL team, we've been working with them for several years, and they're just, they are an amazing group of people. They've done some cutting edge work in terms of the analysis of daylighting. So thanks to them, we've been able to not only provide our clients with analysis of whatever unit they might be considering to use, we can say, here's the BSDF file, you can put it into your model and see how it's going to impact your energy savings and your daylighting. But we've also been able to, for our own benefit for product development, say, okay, we want a product that's going to do this. So let's analyze that. Let's create the BSDF for it and see, should we make it this color or this color or this thickness or the, I mean, I'm being very general here. Sure. It's that kind of thing, right? You play with the variables. And so we've been able to use it for our own R&D as well as for our clients' analysis. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. it's And it's exciting. I mean, I, I love that technical aspect of the product. And I love the fact that it started as an aesthetic product and now we're way deep into the, you know, the trenches that. of <laughs> of coding and um, working with some really bright engineers. <laughs> Did you come in knowing a lot about all of the science behind all of this? No, okay. I, can't, I can't pretend that I did. But you know how it is when you, um, when you devote a lot of time to something, right? you learn about it and you learn what you need to know to move forward and to reach your goals. So a lot of it is just so interesting to me as well. But on the code side, another example is our interior panels. Mm -hmm. So they're very, very lightweight. And some of them use recycled facings. Some of them don't. But if you look at the way the code is written for lead, for example, you get credit for recycled content by weight. Oh. And our panels right. are incredibly lightweight. So we've created a panel that's actually 80% air. And then we've got these super thin recycled facings, which give you very little credit. But when when you think about that panel versus say a half inch of recycled resin, that half inch of recycled resin is going to get more lead credit than our panel that's 80% air, which makes uh, no sense. Uh-huh. But that's how the code is written. So that's the kind of thing that makes me want to get more into the rooms where stakeholders are able to have a say before codes get written. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting because their intention is good, but they're not thinking about if you're using less material. That should count for something. That should, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you had any sort of thing about the code that you could change, would that be it? I mean, one would be the recycled content. Uh -huh. um, plus, now you've got me going on this topic. A honeycomb panel is so self-structural that it requires very little material to install. You know, you've already saved on raw material and you're saving on the structural support because you don't need a lot of it. Mm -hmm. You're saving on transport because it's so light. You're saving on labor to install it. I mean, a single person, a single installer can carry a panel light panel. They're very lightweight. So it's just very resource efficient mm -hmm. all the way. And that's, you know, our codes don't really recognize that kind of thing right now. Right. But yeah, the daylighting code is the other one. That's something that's being written now. So we're looking at codes that are going to be issued in 2020. I'm glad that we're a part of that discussion. Yeah. All of the zero net energy yeah. and a lot of code changes are coming up, which I think a lot of us architects are excited about, but scared about too, because we just don't know what's down the road. Right. And then every time a new batch of codes come out, you have to learn to comply with them. And right. It, 
affects all kinds of things. But I agree with you. I think the, the direction towards recognizing net zero energy goals and, um, and wellness, to me, it seems so obvious right. that we should care about how people <laughs> feel, you know, when they're occupying a space yeah. throughout the day that it should benefit them. I'm glad that those things are being recognized now and and mandated. And it's funny because in a way that goes back to what I was saying earlier about how I got into architecture in the first place, which is just this feeling that there's no more powerful way to impact, you know, just even somebody's daily life is so impacted by the space that they inhabit and you can make such a positive impact. Do you ever miss, or I don't know if you do design buildings or get involved in that. Do you ever miss that part of it? Not really. <laughs> Not really. I mean, I do still feel like I'm having an oh yeah impact. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I get my little kind of design thrill in other ways, just, you know, little daily things uh -huh. <laughs> like making drawings with my son. I'm a big believer in small things matter for architects and designers. I think we probably don't do anything without it being a kind of design reflex. So maybe the way I answered that question just goes to show that I was never meant to spend my entire day designing. <laughs> I don't think a lot of architects, I mean, there's so much kind of logistical work that yeah. goes into being an architect as yeah. well. So you probably don't spend your whole day designing either. No, uh -uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I don't miss it. I like the fact that my job is so broad that I do spend a lot of time in Excel and like deep into spreadsheets, but then I'll go into Photoshop and do something quick for a marketing thing. Yeah, I could see that. It's really satisfying to kind of get your hands into different parts of the problem. Architecture is amazing in that way. I mean, it's maybe one of the careers in which you really do integrate the technical and the creative, right? Yeah. You have to be kind of left brain, right brain. You don't really have a choice. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're actually getting something made, right. it can't just be an idea in order for it to turn out well, you have to be able to execute it. So yeah. Architecture is an amazing training for all kinds of things because mm -hmm. it, what it really teaches us to do is problem solve and whatever is required to solve that problem. We just do it. Right. So, you know, with your skating and your son and running a business, is it hard to, you know, kind of incorporate all of that into your life? Or do you feel like it's kind of balanced in a way? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much any of us really feels like we're always balanced, uh -huh. right? It seems like so many working professionals, I mean, we, we just take on a lot. Yeah. Everyone I know in this field, we take on a lot. Yeah. But I think it all, every aspect feeds the other, right? So, I mean, I used to be much more focused on my work. Uh, and then of course, being a parent really changes that, but it all just, each aspect fuels the other really beautifully. I mean, the skating is just, um, it gives me a lot of energy. And so I bring this kind of energy and joy into the other parts of my life. And similarly, I mean, with being a parent, it's like, how do you, where do you even begin <laughs> with that? It's just such a, a beautiful experience. And I feel like my creativity is definitely enhanced uh -huh. by it. Um, and I talk to Nicholas about my work and he asks about it. And I see my work in a different way now. It's no longer this all-consuming 
thing that mm-hmm. I just have to spend all my time on. Um, I now feel like the other aspects of my life allow me to be more free and more creative in my work and more productive. So in a way, it's like by letting go a little bit, you actually become better at it because you can't just work all day and yeah. all the time. Yeah. I mean, you you do burn out, you know? So if you have those other aspects to your life, you just become much more, I think, um, multidimensional, creative, brave. I mean, well, skateboarding has made me braver. So <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm a quicker decision maker now. Yeah. You oh, know? interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a quicker decision maker. So I think those those other things um, also force you to prioritize. Mm-hmm. There's less room for agonizing over a decision, or, and it just becomes much clearer what's mm-hmm. important. Yeah, in the panel, I think we all talked about the importance of following and trusting your gut. Learning to trust my gut has been an ongoing process, for sure. But the skating is part of that. <laughs> Yeah, and just giving yourself that space away from work enriches your decision-making skills when you're there. Absolutely. I think that's something that I kind of wish I'd learned that sooner. But I'm really enjoying it now. I mean, I'm enjoying having those multiple dimensions. And I have to say I'm appreciative, too, of my ability to kind of manipulate my schedule. Because as an entrepreneur, I can decide to go skating at noon on a Friday, Mm -hmm. um, because I know I'm going to be working on Saturday, you know, I'm (laughs) going to like, I'll fit the work in where it needs to get done, but I can also be a little more flexible. So that's one of the benefits of entrepreneurship, even though it also tends to be something that's hard to let go of. So you can be flexible in your schedule, but it's also very hard to just forget about work. Right. Right. (laughs) It's kind of always there. I'm sure you have that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, as you're talking, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I need to become more like you. Oh, (laughs) I need to like let go. I I need to have more dimensionality (laughs) because I think I work a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you feel like you work a lot, it's funny because I, I still, I really do work a lot, but it's so beneficial mm-hmm. to just fit in something that you love. It helps you to think better. It helps you to be more creative, more decisive, more joyful. Happier. Let's not underestimate that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean, your clients and loved ones all want you to be happy. (laughs) Well, I think when you bring a joy into your work, it resonates. I mean, when I come into work after skating, I'm productive, I'm focused, I'm happy. I may be feeling, you know, particularly bold because I just accomplished something that (laughs) I've been working on for a while and that feeds into my day. That's so true. How big is Panelite? The company. We've had different iterations over the years. So it's been 21 years now. I mean, at one point, we were a company with an office in New York and an office in LA. Then we closed the New York office, essentially after the downturn. You know, originally that was a showroom and architects would come by. During the downturn, designers just kind of stopped having time to go out showrooms, it seemed. Sort of at, at our peak size, we had an office in New York 
and an office in LA that was also a manufacturing facility. So one of our product lines we were making in-house, basically in Culver City, which is kind of madness, you know, to have a space in Culver City and, and manufacture panels. But we did. And I'm very glad that we did because it was a terrific learning experience. You could just walk back and talk to the people in the shop. And mm-hmm. see what was going on. And we were very much in touch with R&D. It was very easy to do quick mock-ups or try things very quickly. And when the downturn happened and we decided to streamline, we closed the New York office and we had to shut down the, the manufacturing as well. It just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So I would like to get back at least to having a lab in-house. Something that will make it easier to just do quick mock-ups. We're looking towards seeking funding to really work on our next R&D projects Uh and and grow the company again. Cool. Can you say what you're working on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can say that it has to do with the clear shade and the daylighting. That is just a technology that has so much to offer. And we've learned so much about it because we were pioneers in it. And we have some really wonderful connections in terms of the supply chain and Mm -hmm. the manufacturers. And we're ready to really develop that product in some pretty exciting ways. Cool. But that's about as much as I can say. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you saying that much. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about while I have you? You know, I've been listening to some of the other interviews Yeah, and you are just, you ask really insightful questions and you're a very good conversationalist. So it's a pleasure to listen to. Oh, thank you. Which makes me think of that question that came up at AWA plus D. So do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? You know, um, I think I would have before said I was an introvert, but I'm not so sure because my husband is definitely an introvert. So I don't know. I I think I'm maybe both if that's possible. Oh, I think it's completely possible. Yeah. I think I may be both. I mean, I think it's a spectrum. Right. Yeah. I mean, some of it has to do with after you've spent time with a lot of people, do you feel energized by that? Or do you need time just to kind of reset? Mm -hmm. Right? Because I love people. I love yeah. being with people and Me meeting too. new people. Yeah. <laughs> so an introvert just sounds like someone who wants to stay in their shell, right? Yeah. And that's not right. But I'm also, I know people who don't like to be alone mm. and I love to be alone. I don't get bored. I don't get lonely, but I couldn't do it indefinitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I've never lived alone. Really? Never. I've lived alone a lot. Uh huh. I moved to different cities a lot because <laughs> I grew up in Toronto And then I went to Berkeley for college. And then um, in my last year of college, I had this opportunity. There was a program through Columbia University called um, the New York Paris program, where you do one semester in New York and one semester in Paris. I mean, can you imagine anything better? (laughs) So (laughs) I applied for that and I applied to do it in my senior year because I have French nationality. And I thought, well, if I just transfer my credits back to Berkeley and I graduate literally in Paris, I'll just stay there. My parents moved to Toronto from Paris right before I was born. Oh, wow. And I always felt like I'd been a little bit cheated. I mean, <laughs> Toronto's a wonderful city, a really wonderful city, but... It's not Paris. It's not. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'll do this New York Paris program and then I'll just find myself a job and live there. And um, I did graduate there and I started working for one of my professors, um, Christian Biachet, who's a 
wonderful architect and human being. And I worked for several years in Paris. Wow. And again, you know, I was living on my own and just, I loved living there. And it was a completely different experience. But I'd also kind of fallen in love with New York on the way to Paris. Oh, wow. Because we'd had that first semester in New York. Right. That must have been 1995 or something. The energy in New York was amazing. And so after a couple of years in Paris, I started thinking about grad school. So I just applied back to Columbia. So in in fairly quick succession, I had lived in Berkeley, and then I lived in New York, and then I lived in Paris, and then I lived in New York again, Mm -hmm. and then started Panelite, thought I mean, I love New York, thought I would live there, I don't know, for how long, but for a long time, probably. But then I met a man who was living (laughs) in LA. (laughs) And that was a very easy decision was just, oh, I want to be with this person. So I'm going to move to LA. And Panelite was very flexible at the time because we had just started. So was an easy decision to open an office here, keep the New York office, open an office here. And then in LA, we were able to be really flexible with research and development in a way that we couldn't be in New York because here we had, we just had so much space that you don't have in New York. We had space and we had access to, I mean, there's a lot of innovation around here with aerospace and the studios, you know, there's just a lot available. So we were able to to really focus on R&D. And those were the days when we started working with OMA. We did a lot of material research and development for them. So it was probably important to have like the New York office and the LA office it during was. that time. It really was. That must be such an incredible feeling because, you know, in grad school, I would imagine that you would think about, oh yeah, I might want to work for these people someday. And then here you are making their design vision possible mm. by creating the materials they're going to use. That That's cool. It is very exciting. Yeah. It's really an exciting way to relate to some of those firms and being able to work with so many different types of clients. I mean, it's not just the big firms and the kind of known firms. We've done some really amazing projects with much smaller firms and I just really appreciate the the range of designers we've been able to work with. That's awesome. Is there anything you would want architects to know if they're thinking about using your product? Well, really just to talk to us about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we have a very consultative process. Our panels are so, they're so easy to work with, but they're also very specific. And Mm -hmm. so it helps a lot to talk to us about if you want to achieve a certain detail or a certain kind of aesthetic I'm pretty sure we can figure that out. But you know, there is something I would want contractors to know because our products are innovative. I mean, we've been doing this for 21 years, but it is still new to many contractors. And so sometimes if they don't know how to work with something, they will put a, I don't know how to work with this fee on it. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they're concerned that they're going to miscut or mm-hmm. that something's going to go wrong. But actually our products are remarkably easy to work with. But I think this is a message that we do need to get out maybe yeah. more clearly is that even though they're innovative properties to the material, I mean, the interior panels, they're super easy to work with. They're uh-huh. lightweight. They're easy to carry. You can cut them with standard woodworking tools. Oh, cool. I mean, they're actually remarkably user-friendly. And the facade panel 
even though it has this incredibly advanced technology of this honeycomb insert that's doing all these wonderful things performance-wise, really on the outside, it's a standard insulating glass unit that everyone knows how to deal with. So it's communicating the fact that these products are innovative in ways that don't mean that they're hard to work with or hard to install. (laughs) Yeah. You're very responsive and organized. I have to say I was really impressed. And I I coordinate a lot with people. So I'm always struck when I'm like, oh, this person is on it. Like they have got it together. (laughs) I hope so. I hope I'm on it. (laughs) I can only imagine that it's really great working with you if you're trying to figure out how to use Panelite and have questions. Oh, thank you. Well, I don't do a lot of the direct sales anymore. But I'm happy to say that the people that they would be speaking with are also on it. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure they must be because you're at the helm running it. Yeah, well, I think we have a good culture because most of the people at Panelite now have been there for more than 10 years and we're all very diligent, but we also really like to laugh. Oh, good. (laughs) That helps. helps. Everyone has a sense of humor. Everyone likes to eat. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) My kind of people. (laughs) Yeah. Business is so interesting. It is. And it's changing a lot. In yeah. good ways, I think. Yeah. Like in my experience, it's become much more human. So like for me, when I think about what a CEO is, my idea of what a CEO was probably 20 years ago is very different from now. And I think that it really has evolved. Yes. And some of that has been with the, the tech industry. I mean, when we started Panelite, we were in our late 20s and we didn't tell anybody really who we were. We got a lot of press as a young and innovative company, but- My business partner and I didn't really put ourselves forward because there was a little bit of a fear that if people realized that we were these two 20-somethings, that they wouldn't want to trust us. Right, sure. Um, We were slightly before, you know, like Google and Facebook and all these like young kids building huge companies. I mean, it was at the very beginning of the internet. So now I sometimes wonder if we should have been more open because you really miss an opportunity to tell your story when you don't talk about who is behind the company. Hmm. That's really interesting. That's definitely true. Now it's a positive thing to be young and different. Yes. Thank you so much for, for joining me. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. And that's our show. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest was Emmanuel Boulier, the CEO and co-founder of Panelite. I hope this episode encourages you all to make a little extra time this week to pursue joy. Since talking with Emmanuel, I've been inspired to make more time in my life for surfing and doing things outside of work that enrich my life. It's really encouraging to see an example of a CEO and leader like Emmanuel who looks fear in the eye and faces it with joy, grace, and strength. So on that note, I'll be putting links to some of the skating groups Emmanuel talked about, as well as links for you to find out more about Panelite and Emmanuel in the blog post at xx-la.com. And check out XXLA Podcast on social media, or sign up for our email newsletter for additional photos of Emmanuel skating and images of Panelite, including some of the projects we discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.